We're continuing our, our series in what some commentators have called the book of Emmanuel in the book of Isaiah, that passage from Isaiah chapter 7 to really to chapter 11. And so this morning I'm going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, the passage that we read from. Although, gosh, I've got to really, I've probably got like three sermons in my notes this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do them all. Um, and no, we won't do that to you. Um, but in the season of Advent that we have been in, and again, we don't, we don't make a huge deal about Advent, but, I, but I, think, I think it's important to recognize it because Advent begins really with a time of darkness. And we're, we're in a time um, in our world today, I think, of, of a time of darkness and it, it appears that that kind of comes and goes, right? I think in our personal lives at times, we go into very dark times. And, and um, what I've found, though, in those times of personal darkness, that, that, that the light of the Lord seems to cut through that, even though I still can't see, even though it's still dark. Does that make any sense? Uh, because I think in the times of darkness is where you're, Faith really begins to be pushed on and tested and tried. And, and it's really like athlete, athletics. Uh, you don't become a better athlete by sitting on the couch, eating potato chips, and watching television, right? About, you don't want, you know, I won't ask for a show of hands who's going to sit on the couch, eat potato chips, and watch football this morning or this afternoon. But anyway, uh, you don't become a better athlete in doing that. And it's the same way, you have to exercise, right? And it's the same way spiritually, uh, I think at times we get in a spiritual sense, we're sitting on a spiritual couch eating spiritual potato chips watching a spiritual television. And God invites us off of the couch. And often that invitation comes in the form of walking in some very dark uh, times in our lives where that's when the light really begins to cut through because we really begin to grow spiritually. And we really begin to develop a, not only a greater faith. Let's put that aside for a second. We develop a greater relationship with the Lord. We really begin to know him better. We really begin to, to really understand his ways but the thing is with the lord at least for me your mileage may vary on this but at least for me when i begin to really feel like i really understand the lord what happens he throws me a curveball or it gets darker i've had that happen and so advent is really that time of the year that is, it, it, it focuses on the first coming of Jesus. It centers around the first coming of Jesus. But the real vision of Danvin is not his first coming, but his second coming. Because eventually, the Lord will return. And I know there's, very, there's different scenarios on those and and I've I've looked at them and I still haven't 
I, I used to be very firm in my understanding of the end times, and I started studying more. And when you study, that'll, that'll mess up everything. It really will. But I know he's coming back. I know he's coming back. He says he is. And when he comes back, he's going to rule, and he's going to reign, and he's going to set things straight. And, and so what you have here in Isaiah, I know I mentioned this to you before, but it's so important to catch this, is that in this prophecy, you have layers of different time periods that these prophecies are about. Again, it's called the near and the far fulfillment. And, and you have in this prophecy of Isaiah, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were in Isaiah 7, you have this prophecy of the near fulfillment, uh, even in the book of Isaiah, that the first, the prophecy of the virgin giving birth, actually in the Hebrew it really means a woman of marriageable age giving birth. Now in Matthew, it's in Greek, and they use the word virgin because Mary, I believe, was a virgin. But you see the prophecy in Isaiah, boy, I can tell this is going to be hard to cram this in all in because there is so much here. But nonetheless, the prophecy in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7, talks about the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, but it also has a near fulfillment, which we saw fulfilled in the 8th chapter with my favorite name of the Bible, Maher Haller Shazbaz, right? What a name, um, that's why I don't go by one syllable, right? My Mike or Don or, you know, Brian doesn't work. But anyway, well, it, you could, if you say it fast enough, it's one syllable, I guess, right? He's going to go home and practice that, and he's doing it now. But anyway, but, but the idea of these children and one of the other children, this is probably a, Malher Haller Shazbaz is probably a child of Isaiah, one of his other sons, Shur Jashem, which means a remnant shall return. Because what is happening here? Remember, the northern kingdom, there's two kingdoms of Israel. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called what? You guys remember, right? Judah. They're a divided nation. And the northern kingdom, which went full-blown into apostasy, teams up with the Syrians, also known as the Arameans or Aram. They form an alliance. Why? Because they are afraid because the Assyrian king, the Assyrians are starting to expand their empire. Eventually, they overrun Damascus, which is Syria. They overrun Samaria, which is the northern kingdom. And they practically overrun Judah with the exception of Jerusalem. And then the angel of the Lord comes and just wipes out the entire Assyrian army. That's just a very quick overview of what's happening here. But at this time in Judah, southern kingdom, you have a king who does not trust in the Lord, but he's very religious. He has a form of godliness without the substance of godliness. And they are afraid because they are afraid that they are going to be taken over by these foreign powers. And then Isaiah makes it even worse when he prophesies about it. 
And when he tells him at the end of chapter 8, it says, and when they say to you, we looked at this uh, Wednesday night before last, right? When they say to you, seek those, I'm in verse 19 of chapter 8, seek those who are mediums and wizards who, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That's very, very important to understand as we go into chapter 9. If they do not speak according to the word, it is because there is no light in them. Light is a metaphor. It is an analogy. It is a symbol of the life of God. Which we, which once we get through the holidays, we'll go back into the book of John, but that's how the book of John began, right? I talked about Jesus, who is God, who is the light of life. Later on in the book of John, Jesus says about himself, I am the light of the world. And I, and I thought about that because how important it is because uh, have you ever had to get up in the middle of the night, particularly in the middle of the night when there's a power failure and you can't even find the flashlight or your cell phone? By, by the way, some of you may not know this, but you can use your cell phone as a flashlight. Anyway, I'll show you later. If, anyway, um, and to walk down the hallway, and, and, you know, it's only my wife and I and our dog at home, at the, you know, so it's, it's pretty safe. But you just never know when our dog is going to leave out that hard toy that she chews on. That You know when they chew on the toy and they get it's spiky, right? And you step on that thing and then you say things maybe you shouldn't, but ever, none, nonetheless, all right? Um, the light clarifies and gives you a means by which you are to walk and safely walk down the hall without stepping on the dog toys, right? The light clarifies. It gives you a means to safely walk through this world. And when we are in darkness, we have the hope of the promise of the light of God that will shed upon us in his due time. Boy, I, I, I get so, I don't know what to say because it all feels so sacrilegious. I get uh, worked up over God's timing, don't you? Because God rarely does things when I ask him to do them, right? He rarely does things how I want them done. And he does them in his own time, in his own way. Of course, now think about that. That's why he's God, right? I'm not his advisor. Not even in my own life. And how often it is that we, and we don't even recognize that we do this, but how often is I think we try to advise God? And, and, and our prayers are more along the line of, God, you should do this. God, you should do that. God, I want this to happen. God, I want that to happen. God, where are you? That's what I love about prayer, of, like the early church did, a prayer where you just simply read the Psalms. You pray the Psalms. When we read the Apostles' Creed, I hope that's a prayer in your heart, a prayer of confession to the Lord. When we read 
before we take communion, I hope that is a prayer in your heart. Because what better prayer can we have than to pray his word back to him? Because when we do that, I think we are walking in Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will what? Will be added unto you. He already knows what you need, right? Does he ever take a vacation? No, he's, he's always with you. He's always paying attention. He knows your needs. He knows of your needs before you even ask them. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't ask for things because the Bible does say go ahead and ask for them. But I think when we pray his word back to him, it takes us out of a mentality that we start to think of God as our butler or our servant. Or our big brother. Which in reality, because of his incredible grace, he's all of those things, isn't he? He really is. He really is. I don't get it. I wouldn't be quite, if I were God, and you guys must thank God that I'm not God, right? Okay, or that God's not like me. But I thank God that God's not like you either, all right? So we're even. As short as I can be, I'm glad that God is long-suffering. Because sometimes I'm not so long-suffering. But these are the things that the light of God brings into our lives even in the midst of darkness. I haven't even started on chapter 9 yet. Um, it says in verse 21, this is just for context, by the way. This is all introductory. Verse 21, chapter 8, they will pass through, the, and, through it hard-pressed, and it shall happen that when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will curse their king and their God and look upward. And then they will look to the earth and they will see trouble and darkness and gloom of anguish and they will be driven into darkness. Have you talked to people lately who are in that place? Boy, I sure have. Angry. And cursing everything. And no sense of contentment. No sense of appreciation. No sense of, uh, of recognition of the grace of God in their lives. And what does that do? According to what this tells us in verse 22, it really plunges us into greater darkness. But it's a darkness that is not looking for the light. But what I love about this chapter, now remember I've, I tell you guys this all the time, the verses... And the chapters in the Bible are not divinely inspired. So chapter 9, verse 1 is a continuation of chapter 8, verse 22, all right? At least I believe it is. Nevertheless, it's a reference back to what I just read to you in 21 and 22 of chapter 8. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who was distressed, 
as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are two tribes in the northern kingdom. And afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Even those, let's go back to verse 22 of chapter 8. Even those who it says, they look to the earth and they see trouble and darkness and gloom and anguish and they are driven into darkness. Even those in verse 21 where it says, they will curse their king and, and their God. Do you see the incredible grace of God in this? Boy, I do. Again, I'm glad that God's not like me. You want to curse me? Guess what I'm going to do to you, right? And I'm also glad God has not had to go here, right? I'm glad that God is not like you either. Incredible grace, incredible humility. And even more so for those of us who are attempting to walk with him. Incredible hope. Incredible hope. Because the people who walked in darkness have seen a light, a great light. And those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. This hopefully should give you hope because this is, is such a description of the character of God that even though he allows us to walk in those times of darkness, even though collectively we go through very difficult times as, as we have been the last few years, God gives us light deep into our souls as a promise and a hope of Emmanuel because one day he's going to come back. And what this is talking about is this is the hope of the Messiah coming. Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 refers to this passage. But it also refers very clearly to Jesus' Galilean ministry. If you read Matthew 4, 13 through 16, it refers very clearly to his Galilean ministry. He spent most of the time in the northern kingdom, what was, excuse me, he spent most of his time in what was the northern kingdom. Now, when he was there, it was no longer the northern kingdom, right? It had been resettled by both, both Jews and uh, Gentiles. But that was the region of Galilee which is very close to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, that northeast area, mountainous area, around the Sea of Galilee. And the, being in the, that extreme northern area of Israel, they were the two tribes that bore the brunt of every invasion. Because often invasions into Israel came from the north. 
And they were the ones who, who, who suffered the greatest losses. And, and so God in his grace, he's demonstrating something here. I hope you guys see this. He's demonstrating that, that to, uh, to those who suffer much, much grace will abound. Where sin abounds, Paul tells us, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. I'm not trying to encourage you to sin. But I am trying to get you to see just a little bit deeper what an incredible, gracious God that we serve. And, and, and when, I, when I recognize how incredibly gracious he is and how much that he loves us, and then I'm amazed the fact that he loves some of you, Right? Had to go there. All right. I want to love him even more. Even though the old hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to lead the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it with thy courts above. This incredible hope that he gives us, this incredible hope of the Gentiles. Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 tells us, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 2. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 2 is a little different. But anyway, Genesis chapter 12, where, where the, the initiation of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And in that covenant that God makes with Abraham, which is focused upon whom? The covenant that God makes with Abraham is really focused upon the Messiah. The covenant that God makes with Abraham is in that covenant, in that promise, in the fact that God will carry out the promise. And I've I've talked about the covenant that God made with Abraham to you guys many, many times. But we see in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis where it is a a unilateral covenant. Uh, God and God alone passes between the two pieces of the animals and makes the promise while Abraham is in a deep sleep. And he proclaims his faithfulness to Abraham. And therefore, according to the book of Galatians, he's proclaiming his faithfulness to you and I. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Such an incredible expression of hope that that one of these days he will come and he will make all things new. We, we will be as those who come from the east and the west. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Luke chapter 13, uh, verse 29. We will come from the east and the west, and we will sit down with Jesus. That's referring to Gentiles, by the way. We will come, and we will be with him. This incredible hope, not only given to Israel in Isaiah chapter 9, but it, it's also spills over. I think the, the text is very clear in Isaiah 9. It spills over that this is a promise, a hope that is given to us as Gentiles as well. 
There's one tree. Romans is very clear about that. There's one tree where we, Jew and Gentile alike, are grafted in into one tree. And we together become the complete people of God. What's interesting about this is is that both Zacharias, Zacharias, who is the, the son of whom? John the Baptist, Zacharias, and Simeon, both in the book of Luke, tap into this prophecy. I want to touch on that briefly uh, this morning. We're not even going to get into verse 6 this morning. We're probably going to look at that on, on Christmas Eve because it, there's, there's just way too much here to, to look at before we get into verse 6. Uh, although verse 6 could take me more time than you probably would want me to take to really to delve into that because it's so full. But you have this idea that the light would come to those who are walking in darkness. And first of all, we see this in the prayer of Zacharias. I, I love the story of Zacharias. Uh, you remember the story, right? He doesn't believe that, that God's going to send the forerunner through his wife, Elizabeth. And because he doesn't believe what happens to him. You guys remember? He is unable to speak. And as I love to say, then there was peace in that household for at least nine months, if not longer. But nonetheless, I'll pick this up right around. I'll just um, pick it up around verse 76. When Zacharias is able to speak again, and that's what's important about this prayer. He's gone for nine months or more without even speaking. Could you imagine going for nine months or more without even speaking? That you can't speak? And that, never mind, I'm not going. I'll, we'll deal with that later. Anyway, verse 76 of chapter 1. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. And you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. He's talking about his son, John the Baptist to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. And that's exactly what he did in his baptismal ministry, did he? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. I love that word day spring. Well, actually, I love it in the, in the Greek better. It's the Greek word anatole which is a reference to the east. It's a reference to the east. Why? Because the sun always rises out of the east. You go from darkness at night. Now, I actually get up and do this every so often. Okay, I'm a musician, so I don't like getting up early. But anyway, but I actually do this every so often. I get up, and, it's, and some of you do this all the time. Um, but you get up especially this time of year, and you get up, it's dark. It's actually easier to do it this time of year because the sun comes up so much later, but I'm not going to go there with you, all right? But you get up, and it's dark, and you begin to watch the Anatole, the sunrise, the day spring. You're in darkness, but you are beginning to see what? The great light of the sun. 
Do you see how God, even in nature, is preaching his work of salvation to people, to humanity? And the early church understood this was that the, 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 the dawn, the every morning when the sun rose, it was an expression of the sun who rose from the dead. And it became an experience for them that they were able to, to, uh, to pray and to reflect and to meditate and to give incredible thought to the Son of God who rose from the dead for your sins and for my sins. Now, some of you who get up every morning before the sun comes up, think about that tomorrow morning as you watch the sun come up. And this incredible sign that God has built in, that he's preaching the gospel to us in so many different ways. And, and often it is that I, I really think that we, we just don't quite have the ears to hear that we should have. And then, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He said, this is a direct reference from Isaiah 9. But notice to guide our feet into the way of peace. I'll get the, again, the illustration of going down the hallway in the middle of the night and you're stepping on one of the dog toys that doesn't feel good, right? If you turn a light on, you're able to see and you're able to navigate. Even if it's just one step at a time. Even if it's just through a little flashlight. Just one step at a time, we're still able to see and able to navigate. Simeon, in, in Luke chapter 2, his prayer. Remember, he's in the temple and he was given a word from the Lord that he would not die until he saw the Messiah? So in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, and it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. I love that. The consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, the care of Israel. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. Here it is, to bring revelation to the, to bring, excuse me, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Again, he's tapping back into Isaiah 9 as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. So that's what? Creation. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus Christ. No wonder he's wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When you, when you start to tie these things together, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, referring to creation as the expression of what God does in each of our hearts. Paul says later in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. That's darkness. Behold, all things have become anew. That's light. It had to be God to have been able to knit all these truths together. I mean, to me, they just, they just overlap in so many different ways. When you go to so many different passages, how they really just, really just preach the same thing. Guys, there is hope in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ, I believe, is the hope and the light for the entire world. Amen? What I love about this, and I'm just going to jump a little, I'm almost done. It says, you have multiplied the nation, I'm back in Isaiah 9, and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. I must, I wish they would have filmed these festivals that they had, particularly the, 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 the fall festivals the fall feast, when it was a celebration of the harvest. See, we're detached from our food supply. I really think we are. And maybe not really a great way. Because when they had a good harvest, they really rejoiced. Why? They knew they weren't going to go hungry. Because it didn't come in on a truck that refrigerated their food, right? And how important there, it was that they had a good agricultural yield of the fields and how tied they were to the land. We, we're di- kind of divorced from that today. And how joyful it was when God would provide a plentiful harvest and what that must have been like. The light that is shined upon those in darkness will be like those who rejoice when there's a good harvest. Some of you who have been around farms and such, I think you can probably understand this a little bit better. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and for fuel of fire. This is really a reference to Judges chapter 6 and 7 where a guy named Midian, excuse me, a guy named Gideon, excuse me, Gideon took on Midian, all right? That's, that's for, all right. And he took on the, the Midianites with an army of 300 men. 300. 
Remember, they had, the, they had their light. They had their light in the jar. And, and at the right time, they all broke their jars, and the light shined, and it just totally flipped out the Midianites. And, and they were so scared, they started killing each other. See how that ties in to what the light of God can do? And then the burning of the uniforms and, and, the, and the weapons of war because the reality is that one day we will, and we see this earlier in the book of Isaiah, that we will study war no more. Yep. We will study war no more because we will live in the peace and the prosperity of the Messiah when he comes again. Isaiah 2.4 says, And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. In other words, they will enable themselves with the capacity to have the joy of the harvest. He will beat their swords into plowshares. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Boy, I look forward to that. I look forward to that. We even war against each other in this country, the churches. I look forward to beating those swords into plowshares and not studying war anymore, not, not, find, not being that where you have to get in the last word or you've you got to set people straight, you know? See, God's a whole lot better at that than I am, I found out. I just put out the word and let, let the Spirit of God do what he wills in the hearts of each of you. That's the light for those of us who sit in darkness. That is incredible, incredible hope and incredible good news. Amen?